Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Coming up on this week's show, the new Games Master has been revealed. The GTA Trilogy remaster is almost here. And we chat Microsoft Gaming and Motocross Madness with Rob Reinhardt. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, check out their brand new book that's available from today, October 29th, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, covering some incredible franchises that started on the Mac, Mist Halo, SimCity, to name but a few. At 480 pages long, this book is a must-read for all fans of retro gaming. You can check that out in their entire book range on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 299, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's podcast, a show that takes you behind the scenes on the good old days of video games, covering some incredible computers and consoles, the games that we grew up playing, the people that made them, the companies as well. And I'm thinking of some of the companies that we've covered on this show, like, you know, Activision, Ocean Software, Atari. Name some software companies, Joe. Bloody hell, every time. <laughs> you always put me on the spot software. You knew that was coming, God. surely. Um, well, I don't want to name a load that we've not had, but like... <laughs> Konami, Come on, Ocean. Capcom, Ocean, Psygnosis, Team 17, Rare, Nintendo. Like, yeah. I mean, there you go. Is that all right? Did I pass? Am I still on Retro Hour? <laughs> we've, talked, we've talked about all those companies in great detail over the last uh, six years or so that we've been doing this show. But I mean... 299 episodes lads i just want to say you know uh next week is going to be the big 300 it is mind-blowing that we've done so oh, many totally of and i think you know we do cover the good days of video games but we also cover the bad days of video games yeah. so we talk <laughs> we talk about all of the different aspects of video games and uh you know 299 we've we've nearly done 300 interviews and uh we've covered so much in that you're completely right well, we have got, obviously, a bit of a uh, monumental show coming up that we are going to be doing this weekend, actually, um, on Sunday evening, the Retro Hours 300th episode, which is going to be a little bit different because we've kind of teased it over the last few weeks, but we're actually going to be doing a as-live show. So we're going to be streaming the show live to our patrons so they can um, tune in and watch us recording it live. We're all going to get together for the first time in over 18 months in studio do the show in person, and we're going to be joined by some amazing guests. Really, this weekend is just going to be a pure celebration, and we're going to use it just to have a bit of a giggle, I think, aren't we? Yeah, it's going to be fun because, you know, we've, we do this audio, and we're going to release a video to everybody, yeah. and you're going to be able to see, you know, us actually in the flesh. And we haven't, well, we haven't really been around in the flesh altogether Uh you know, of course, it's not just flesh. We need to wear some clothes and stuff. But No um, flesh on me. <laughs> I was going to say, like, where, where's he going with this? <laughs> Do you want to tune in and watch the Flesh Fest this weekend? <laughs> we, 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 yeah, we've not been around, like, in a studio together um, mm. for, like, pretty much two years, is it? I'm, I'm, yeah. my, my concern, but this is also my work for me, because I'm very nervous about, is one, doing it live to the patrons, 
And obviously, it's going to come out to the regular people as well. It's not like episode 300 is exclusive to the patrons. Yeah, yeah. It's just they will get the live footage. You know, one, I'm worried about that. Two, we've got three amazing guests joining us. So there's going to be six of us on the show, which is mind-blowing. And then also, Dan's wife has texted us all saying that she's going to do a little party beforehand to celebrate episode 300, um, which is lovely. Are you saying you're nervous about my wife's cooking? No, no, I'm worried about getting drunk or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're just going to eat a load and and fall asleep. Yeah, I'm just going (laughs) to be sat in the corner holding my belly. (laughs) Full of sausage rolls. (laughs) I mean, I'm really excited for it. I I mean, we've got a lot of work to do between now and then. You know, I've got to get all the equipment set up. We're going to test everything. You know, we haven't done video before, so uh, whether my internet bandwidth in this new studio will actually cope, we'll see. Uh, But we're going to be joined by, like you said, three incredible guests. So, uh... Should we announce who they are? Oh, totally. Well, this one, this one's a really big one for me. And I can't believe we've had him on the show before. I can't believe we've had him on the show 262 episodes ago. And I thought it was wow. like 100 episodes ago. We're going to be having Clint, a.k.a. Um, LGR on, which I think is absolutely awesome. I absolutely loved interviewing him and he was well up for it when we asked him. So Clint is going to be joining us, which is awesome. Yeah, I can't believe we had him. What was it like episode? Episode 38. So if my maths is right, yeah, yeah, 262 odd, something like that. Like when you were like, oh yeah, when did we have him on? I was like, oh yeah, like episode 100. <laughs> like, mm. Yeah, a long time ago. So that's going to be incredible. Um, we're also going to be joined by Kim Justice as well. Now, obviously we're all fans of Kim's channel. I think, you know, she does some of the absolutely best documentaries on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I can just, it's one of those channels I can put on and I can just like literally, I'll, I'll, think I'll watch one video before you know I've had a channel on that mm-hmm. all night. Well, yeah, well testament so to her as well. She's writing to all the magazines at the moment. Well, she's not writing to them. She's writing for them. I was going to say, so what's she's actually, about writing to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's uh, writing for them. So there's some fantastic articles coming out from Kim as well. So that huge knowledge of gaming there. And a very good friend of the show, um, Dimitris from uh, Modern Vintage Gamer, who we only had on about a month ago. But, you know, we told him we're doing this for episode 300. He really wanted to get involved in it. And we know how much we all love Dimitris. He's always got so much value on the show and people love hearing from him as well. And I think it's just going to be a load of fun having those three incredible content creators on the show too, to chat about, you know, some retro gaming stories, to chat about a few subjects for an hour or so. It's going to be great fun. And also, um, if you are a patron and you want to watch it live, we're going to be doing it on Sunday evening that'll be halloween october 31st oh. not tempting fate or anything <laughs> um and you can watch it actually i'll put the youtube unlisted link in there see the show getting done as live and also we want you guys to get involved as well so there's going to be more details in our patreon and of course like you said the show is going to be released to everybody else as usual the following friday and there will be a special video version of it um as soon as i can get it edited and providing it actually records properly, fingers crossed. But um, that is going to be this weekend, the Retro Hours 300th episode. We'd love you to join us for it. And it's going to be open to all patron supporters. I mean, you can get it from, I think, what, what's our lowest one? Like $3 a month? You less than a me. cup of coffee. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> less, less than a cup of coffee. And you can support the show and get involved in it. And all the details are at theretrohour.com. I did mention this weekend on Sunday... It is going to be Halloween. And you know, the worst thing about Halloween is that I'm going to a Halloween party just before the 300s. <laughs> I'm going to be absolutely hungover and probably so, still dressed so we're just going to have up Exorcist music. We'll just have yeah. the Exorcist music as like Ravi walks in like with mist behind him hungover. Turning white with my head spinning <laughs> Turning around. Turning white, yeah. 
I love your Halloween makeup, Ravi. What do you mean I'm not wearing Halloween makeup? <laughs> I'm always this pasty. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we always like to chat about, you know, Halloween games that we're going to be playing as well. And if you guys, obviously we're doing the show on Sunday, but I'm thinking, uh, you know, cause Ravi's out partying. Maybe you play them on Friday, Ravi. But I've already got mine um, selected for this Halloween. And this is one that's to me is a tradition that I play every year on Halloween. I've got Jack in the Dark downloaded and ready to play on my old 486, which was um, a special Halloween version of Alone in the Dark that came out in 1993. Yeah, man. You play that every year, every year. Yeah, like we I do like do. a post on Instagram, like, what have we all been playing? And like every time it's like, alone in the dark kind of thing. That to me, though, it's got the best atmosphere of any mm. retro game for mm. Halloween. And, and I'm going to play, I've got um, Ghosts and Goblins as well to play, oh, which, brilliant. you know, another great, obviously, awesome. Halloween theme game. Awesome game. What about you? You got anything lined up? I know you're a big Halloween fan. Uh, I usually just crack on with Resident Evil. And I've been playing, I mentioned it on the uh, After Hour show this week, I've been playing through Sympathy of the Night. Mm. Um, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which, you know, I actually forget Castlevania are horror games. Like, they're meant to be, like, you know, you're fighting vampires and werewolves and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but I never really associate them as, like, scary games just because, you know, they're 2D platformers and stuff. So what I might play is a game that actually really scared me when I played it when I was younger, a game called Cold Fear for the PlayStation 2, which is essentially a Resident Evil 4 clone um, where you know, over-the-shoulder shooter, but it's set on a ship, like an oil rig, um, and it's been taken over by zombies, and you, like, have to get headshots and stuff. And I played it. I borrowed it off a friend, you know, like, 15 years ago, and mm. was terribly scared of it and terrible at the game. And obviously, I've since have picked it up in my own collection, and I've not played it since then. So I think I might crack out the PS2 and play that. It's from Darkworks, I see. You did Alone in the Dark, oh, New Nightmare. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Nice. There you go. One that I've always wondered about has been Splatterhouse because I used to buy these like American comics Mm. and, you know, get them on import. And in the back, it would always be adverts for Splatterhouse. So I I need to actually check that game out. It's one I've never, never really discovered. I'm sure Joe is familiar with that one. I am very familiar with Splatterhouse. I love Splatterhouse. I've got some funny stories about that, but I won't won't go off on one telling you about my childhood memories of Splatterhouse, but... Really good game. I hope you enjoy it, Ravi. Yeah, that was very much, it looked like a rip-off of the Halloween movies, didn't it? Rip-off of, like, just, yeah, any horror film, really. There's so many references yeah. in there. And in, in the first game, the mask that you wear is literally just the Friday the 13th mask. But then by yeah, the yeah. second and third game, they, like, changed it a little bit. So it wasn't so, like, obvious. But, yeah, really fun game. And that game's got the best sound effects. You know, when you splat things on the wall. Yeah, and yeah, like, pop like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you'll enjoy that, Ravi. Be brave. Get it downloaded. So we have got an incredible guest as well coming up on the podcast in around 20 minutes from now before we get into the news stories. And this week, I mean, God, Motocross Madness, what a series. Oh, yeah, this is a fantastic game. And, you know, we chat with Rob Reinhardt and he's he's the main man with Motocross Madness. You know, I love these titles. They came just at a period when Microsoft were kind of trying to change their identity and get into that whole gaming world with the uh, Sidewinder pads. Do you remember those? <laughs> Yeah, it was very much like a like a prototype almost Xbox controller, wasn't it, a couple of years before? Yeah, yeah, and uh, Motocross Madness was actually packaged with them at one point, but um, it also arrived when, like, Pentiums were really popular and lots of 3D acceleration was coming out, and it, it was a really cool game. It was my first, like, free roam experience, and we chat to Rob about the whole development of it, the um, ATV series as well, his kind of history, and and stuff like you know, really fascinating stuff like how they did the audio, which, uh, you know, you don't think about audio really that much in, in those games, but then people were getting different 
kind of sound systems 4.1 was coming out, you know, uh, it was really important. Yeah, I love the stunt mode in it as well. That was always loads of fun. Oh, yeah, and, you know, you'd go to the very edge of the map and it would just fire <laughs> you like a cannon across the whole map. Yeah, I mean, an incredible game. And it's great to get into that kind of, you know, that late 90s, early 2000s PC era as well, which, like you mentioned then, I mean, it was kind of around the time when every six months or so, a new graphics card came onto the market and new games would take advantage of it. And, you know, it wasn't a cheap time to be a PC gamer, uh, but they were really pushing the boundaries with things they could do with 3D acceleration. Yeah, and it was, like, it was like pre-Xbox, but they were trying to get that kind of, gaming vibe on the pc and trying to you know unify it all with the same controller and uh had some mad stuff like i don't know if you remember the force feedback stuff that you could get so you could get like a, a vest that you would put on and it would have mm. like kicks and punches like you were being hit and when you crashed your motorbike uh your, your motocrosser in there you know you could feel like you were actually falling over or, or getting hit in I your own my living room. on the handlebars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so really hyped for this week's guest. Rob Reinard is going to be joining us very soon. But first, a lot of news stories to talk about this week, guys. Let's jump straight into it, though, because, I mean, it seems like every other week at the moment, there is news about the Games Master comeback, of course, the uh, probably the most famous British gaming TV show from back in the 90s that is finally coming back after over 20 years off our screens. Uh, we've talked about the new location. We've talked about the new hosts of the show. The big question is, who is going to be the Games Master? Because in the original series, it was Sir Patrick Moore, who was uh, best known for shows like The Sky at Night. You know, he's an astronomer. Um, very respected, but then unusually did this, uh, you know, kids and teenagers TV show all about gaming quite randomly. Well, I, f- I think the Games Master has always had to be someone who's completely clueless about video yeah. games, is kind of pronunciated and has has a bit of a, a little playful fun element with them but uh is totally removed from the world of video games and uh they've just made a new choice of a presenter and i think for our international listeners we need to explain who he is uh but this is a sir trevor mcdonald and he's basically a british newsreader so he used to do like the news at 10 which was the main news in the uk but then he he did a lot of fun things what what, what are your your guys memories of uh trevor mcdonald i just remember him being the leading news reporter for the you know for britain for the uk like yeah he did like the main channel three itv news but am i correcting thinking did he do like children's tv in the 80s or something yeah so there's this yeah. show called tiz was and uh lenny henry's a famous comedian and he had he, he had a character called trevor mcdonough who was basically right. um, a, 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 a mickey take of trevor mcdonald but then they actually got him in to the oh, studio okay. and the whole thing about Tiz was was they'd like throw water over you they'd throw pies and they'd gunge you and stuff and he had to sit and present the news really sternly in the middle of like <laughs> all this water getting chucked everywhere and absolute chaos so uh that showed his kind of like fun side you know so I, it's wicked that he's up for this and he's 82 years old as well so well, what uh, about this for, for things that he's done throughout his career that you wouldn't expect did you know he performed live on stage in Hyde Park with The Who Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and of course, he's done Have I Got News For You on TV, did a special edition of Countdown. So he's not beyond having a bit of fun, even though, and I think the reason this works so well, so I've got to say, I think we all unanimously agreed, he's a fantastic choice to be the new, new Games Master. Because the Games Master needs that gravitas, he, doesn't he? Yeah, and it needs that kind of, 
you know, s- s- stern kind of British, I'm going to tell you off as well, like, you petulant yeah. child. <laughs> and I Headmaster can imagine vibe. him yeah, kind of doing that as well. He, he's, he's definitely got that vibe. And I think as well, I mean, we've talked about, obviously, the show's been filmed already, but I think, I imagine everybody was there, probably had to sign NDAs or something, so I've not seen much about it. I, I, I don't know. I feel like they probably hadn't cast him at that point. I could be completely wrong. And I feel like they're just going to kind of like slot him in, in between yeah. maybe. I don't know. Like, I wonder what they would do unless they just had like, you know, a fill-in just like reading to the contestants. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting because I've but seen maybe like, I've seen like pretty much, I put, we put out like, what do you think of this choice on Twitter? And I think pretty much universally, everybody was like, this is genius. And it's, it's he's kind of like a guy that you wouldn't have thought of originally. But no, now it's yeah, been suggested. Everybody's like, oh, my God. And, you know, I know people were saying Patrick Stewart and and uh, Brian Blessed, who, uh, bless him, he's quite, he's like 90 years old now. So, uh, yeah, I, I, f- I think it's a really good choice, uh, Trevor MD. Well, you know, Robert Florence is going to be the main host of it as well, um, who we all agreed, another great choice in the Scottish comedian. So I don't know about you guys, man. I don't want to tempt fate too much, but this is looking pretty good. <laughs> I've got to say. Yeah, when it was first announced, I think, I don't remember if we said it on the show, we may have just said it individually to each other, but we were all a bit like, oh, might be a bit naff, but it seems like it's coming together quite nicely, so touch wood. They're, they're, they're making some good. good choices on paper. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So hopefully it won't be too long until we get it. I'm hearing rumours that it's going to be November. It's going to be dropped on YouTube, so maybe only a couple of weeks to wait, of course. Uh, we'll let you know our thoughts as soon as we see it, but if you want to read more about the uh, what we know so far about the Games Master comeback, we'll link up that article in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is quite an interesting one. I mean, <laughs> before we started recording, we were spending about, about 15 minutes on Wikipedia, <laughs> kind of learning the story of this, because it's something that none of us were actually familiar with. Now, this is a console that was apparently vaporware, back in the uh, mid two th- early to mid-2000s, called The Phantom, that apparently now a prototype of it is going up on auction. Yeah, this, this baffled me a little bit. So I, I, I've seen this a couple of places this week. So it's going up for auction on Friday. So the day this episode comes out. Um, so on Friday the 29th of October, it'll be going up for auction for people obviously to bid on stuff i don't think it's going to be quite as popular as like the uh the sony nintendo or whatever it's called the nintendo playstation the PlayStation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't think it's going to be as popular as that but yeah dan you have to do some research to help me with this one so well, well vaporware kind of like now you've mentioned yeah um, uh the, the the nintendo playstation which which was seen as vaporware vaporware yeah. is kind of just like something that doesn't exist that's yeah like, yeah like hot air, you know like hyped said, yeah. or it's it's like out there and then people initially thought that was vaporware the until they found yeah. that uh nintendo playstation you're right it's 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 the same with this uh phantom like people thought oh this doesn't exist or there was yeah. a few versions or fake prototypes out there or something yeah so from from what i understand i'll give my what i think it is and then dan can correct me or agree with me um <laughs> they started making it in 2002 the company um which are now known as phantom funny enough but they were called something different at the time and essentially they were branding it as like a online console essentially for pc gaming but yeah. like pc gaming made easier to kind of connect online and play against other gamers and stuff using it um, and kind of more like a kind of console hub to get you online and stuff like that. And it was meant to come out in 2004, I believe. Um, but it just, there was no marketing for it. And it was like, I think it was at E3 once. And it was rumored that it was just a fake empty shell of a console. And mm. then it just kind of slowly died. Um, but apparently there was like no marketing for it whatsoever, which is why 
it kind of got listed as vaporware, but apparently the prototype does exist and is going up for sale. Yeah, because it kind of reminds me looking at the specs of it. It sounds like a PC yeah. that would have connected to the internet. Like and Windows you know, XP, distant- wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it must have been, yeah, for that era. Um, and they're saying instead of disc and cartridges, it would have used um, direct downloads. So it really sounds like, you know, a, a custom PC with like a an Xbox Live kind of store or Steam or something, you know, like hmm. a custom version of that as a front end. So nothing that would have been beyond the realms of possibility. I mean, it doesn't sound too much of an advanced system, really. So I wonder why it never actually made it to market. Well, the thing that I love that you pointed out to me was, <laughs> there's even a video of it on YouTube I've just watched, uh, was that there was a few prototypes out there, and one was at QuakeCon 2004. Oh, really? And yeah. It was smashed to bits in front of a live studio audience, and this guy's <laughs> got a giant, like, Quake hammer. <laughs> Imagine if it sells on Friday for, like, 100 grand now, and they're just yeah. like, oh, we smashed it up. <laughs> yeah, 2004, they were just like, right, let's just... Smash Imagine this, if that guy yeah. buys it again and smashes this one. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me if it was like John Romero or somebody. <laughs> but yeah, interesting device. And apparently this company, they actually make like gaming keyboards and that kind of thing yeah. today. Um, I'm looking at that. Apparently they've only got three employees as of July 2007, it says. That was the last time I guess it was counted. So it doesn't look like a massive company. And I think that is something that we've often seen in, especially these kind of independent console companies, you know, these very small teams who are, you know, trying to take on the big boys, really, it's often a very difficult thing to do. So I'm not surprised it failed. And it mm. looks like a prototype. Like, mm. you know. It, it's like a skybox. It, it looks ugly. Well, the description <laughs> of it, it looks like your uncle's loony alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> or like, fan yeah, heater or something. Yeah, 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 something like that. Or Wi-Fi or George box. Foreman, yeah. Yeah, they're saying here, yeah, so there was that one that was publicly destroyed at QuakeCon. The other one was spotted by a computer repair shop in Venice, Florida, in 2015, which I guess that is probably the one that's up for sale. The one that hasn't been destroyed, obviously. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much it goes for. I mean, I'm really into video games and retro gaming. I'd never heard of this thing. So how much interest it'll be, I, I don't know whether I've just been out the loop or what. I, I don't remember hearing anything about this. I, I haven't heard of it either. So, and I chucked it in the news because I thought it'd be a good talking point. So we'll see. Maybe we can mention it in next week's show and see how much it went for. Watch it go for like 10 million or something. Yeah, something insane. (laughs) Guys at QuakeCon, no! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we'll be keeping an eye on that one. Something else that we've been talking about over the last few months and is uh, almost here, the uh, GTA Trilogy, these kind of remastered versions of the uh, classic Grand Theft Auto games that is now only a few weeks away. And we've seen a trailer. We've seen a few uh, screenshots as well. They're calling this the Definitive Edition coming out in mid-November for the current-gen consoles. And really the main thing is it's got some um, quite different-looking graphics that I've seen had a bit of a mixed reaction online. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm I'm an elite from the GTA modding communities. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, I, when I saw the footage of this, I was like, they've copied a lot of stuff that the modders have done originally. So, like, you know, mm. high-end textures on the... Um, roads and stuff especially with like rainy roads and the light reflections and stuff people have been ramping up these games for a long time and you know it it does look interesting but it it does look like it's just kind of a high res a reskinning and to be honest i think i think it's just a bit of a like little little stopgap between gta 6 just to keep people happy whilst you know they would have got a small team to kind of do this and uh and just kind of redo it but um i don't know it seems like it's going to be fun and uh i guess it's not for me it's for everybody who 
you know, has memories of it and, and, and wants to play that. But to be honest, I, I, I'd play the original Vice City because I'm a, I'm a purist when it comes to a, a GTA. <laughs> what, what do you think of the look of it, Ravi? Like the... It looks a bit cartoonish. They've, they've kind mm. of done a bit shadery. Yeah. You know, um, and, and they've kind of gone into the blocky stuff, but it, it looks like they haven't done much on, on the models. But, um, you know, yeah, it, interesting. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of, like, how San Andreas looked, to be honest. You see, I think, like I said it before we started recording, um, and I don't know if you guys agree with me or whatever, but I think it's got, like, a real kind of, like, cartoony, you just said it there, cartoony look, but it's got, like, a real, like, Fortnite look to it. And I don't yeah, know if that's yeah, the shader kind of, kind of uh, look. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if they're trying to kind of appeal that to you know the modern age of gamers. Like, I don't, I don't want to say kids, but like young people, you know, who are really into Fortnite and stuff like that. Don't buy this for kids. Yeah, yeah, don't buy this for kids. But like, I just, I feel like that's what they're trying to appeal to. That kind the of the one market. I'm really, wrong. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing GTA Three, like mm. seeing that properly because that one it, it never really looked amazingly good. It was always boxy. Foggy. And and yeah, and kind of square and it had that blur effect all over the top of it and stuff. So it'd be nice to see that one in a bit more clarity. And especially when you had the whole gang wars and you were driving through and everyone was shooting at you and stuff. But um, yeah, it, it looks like fun and stuff, but it's interesting to see it's coming out on the PC as well, because I'm sure it's going to get even more modded to hell yeah. on top of that. You know? Yeah, 100%. Well, it's coming out on pretty much everything. Um, it's coming out on Xbox One, Xbox Series X, PS4, PS5, PC, and Switch. We're getting it digital on November 11th, and then we're getting it physical on all of those consoles. I thought we were just getting it for the Switch uh, on the 7th of December, but it's coming out physical copies of the game on every single mm. console and PC as well, which is really interesting. But apparently it's going to be quite big. Like, I'm not too sure, but it's going to be 25.4 gigabytes, which apparently is on the bigger end for switch games yeah yeah, yeah. we used to get big. gta in a rip for like 200 meg uh, yeah by so, city yeah and you know i'm reading the articles here and they're saying you know publishers don't often like to pay for the 32 gigabyte sd cards for the switch so you know there's rumors it might be a little bit more expensive on the switch but i don't think they will mm. um but apparently it's going to be released and published by nintendo they're saying nintendo have yet to confirm that but Nintendo are going to be publishing and distributing it in themselves, which I think is quite interesting because it's Grand Theft Auto. Um, mm. But they did, you know, and it's an adult game, but they did actually publish and distribute Dark Souls and Doom themselves. So it's not out of the realms of reality. Like, Yeah, it, it does kind of feel like Nintendo have moved on a yeah. bit from the days of you yeah. know, no bloody Mortal Kombat. Yeah, they're it? probably <laughs> thinking like, actually, okay, you know, we're missing some money here kind of thing. Yeah. So, I, I think that is going to be big issues though and the biggest think- issues are going to be the radios and the licensing of the music on there. Oh, it's not yeah. going to have all the original music on there. There will be definitely have licenses we heard that? Do, do we know that for sure? We, I, I've not seen anything about that and I've read I don't want to say I'm a, you know, I'm the master here. I've read every single article. I've read like three articles on it and none of them have mentioned the music. So that's such a really good point there, Ravi. Mm. Yeah. And also a lot of them are saying that the Confederate flags also being removed from it as well. Mm. And all the kind of, a lot of the references. So maybe there'll be some changes for uh, uh, more of the kind of modern time. And it might be a bit more censored because they, they they were pretty risque games back then. Yeah, Yeah, they were. 
I mean, I get stuff like the flag, you know, it's obviously a different time now, but I think, you know, the music was such an, especially Vice City yeah, for me, that was such an integral part of it. And I think, fair enough, the new graphics are different. Personally, I don't mind the look of it. Um, first thing I thought when I saw them is it looked a bit like The Sims. But oh, yeah, it's kind yeah, of got good that. Point, Sims, it's yeah. not, you know, I, I think it, it kind of looks like improved PS2 graphics, but obviously not to the quality of like a PS5 game. But I think that's all right because it's a retro game. And I probably don't want it to look too polished. I want it to kind of have that kind of retro kind of vibe to it. I think, you know, some of the backgrounds and the buildings look really good um, from these screenshots that we've seen so far. You know, I'd, I think, yeah, that- I'd, I'd love the I'd love the um, voiceovers to be kind of cleaned up a little bit. And because yeah. there was some really good acting on that, like voice acting and stuff, I'd, I'd love to hear them in maybe a bit better quality or they, they run it through AI or something. Well, I think, you know, hopefully they're going to use the original. If You know, they'll still have all that stuff, I imagine. You know, they can release it at a higher bitrate on the game. But yeah, I think the, the music to me is the thing that if they get that wrong, I think that's going to be the biggest backlash if the original soundtrack's not on there because it's so important. And, and also it seems that, like, I've, I've just checked and they seem to be removing versions of, like, GTA uh, Free and Vice City and San Andreas off the PlayStation Store at the moment. Yeah, so do that. they're okay. removing the older versions and then putting in the the newer one. Which yeah, is they don't want anyone buying it for like nine dollars. I want you to pay. Yeah, yeah. Wait to pay sixty dollars yeah. for the. So do, do you think yeah. the value of the OG ones are going to go up then? Like, uh, uh, I don't think so. They're they're so cheap. No. The original ones and they're, and they're absolutely everywhere. Aren't they? They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I think some people might try it. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, look, original copy of GTA 3, like 50 quid. Whereas the reality of it is it's like a £4 game these days. So I think some people will try it, but I can't see it becoming expensive. And I think you're right what you said, Ravi. You know, it's probably not for us, you know, guys that have got like a PS2 lying around and the original game. It's for people. I mean, I'm sure we're going to buy it as oh, well. Oh, yeah. It's actually probably probably crosses over both, really. But I think the main audience there is going to be people that had a PlayStation 2 and played the originals and probably haven't played them since. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be for me who's hacked it to run on the Wii U. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah you'll, you'll be the one they're taking down, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, if, I mean, again, it's a no-brainer, especially when I saw the physicals coming out on my birthday. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's birthday presents sorted. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, just a good way to play an updated uh, version. Yeah, and I the, guess I guess the if they do release six, you know, it's, it's a build-up. Go through the whole series yeah, yeah. and then... Um, you know, it gives them some time and it also gets people younger, younger people invested in, in the older series and the whole kind of line of it. If there is any reference to the older stuff in the new one. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's an interesting point. There are people probably, you know, younger people who probably look at the old games and they probably look a bit too janky for them to take seriously now. But this might, you know, they'll, they'll want to play them, but they'll play them like this. I think these games are going to sell incredibly well. Anyway, I'm sure they're going to have a number one hit on their hands with these. So, uh, yeah, look forward to the release of that. Not long to wait now. Now, before we get into our interview this week, of course, stories about motocross madness with, I guess, this week, Rob Rennard is coming up in just a minute. Uh, it's time to talk about this, a new TV show. And it seems like there's been um, lots of kind of game-inspired television shows that have been coming along recently. This one, a television version of the classic space horror System Shock is coming. Yeah, this this is interesting. So, um, interestingly enough, this has been bought, the rights to this have been bought by Binge, who we actually mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago with the, they've bought the rights to the Driver TV show, like to drive right, it. Right, yeah, yeah. So, I feel like this company, Binge, they're like, apparently, like an Australian Netflix, like, you know, you can't just get it in straight, you can get it like other places and stuff. But like, they seem to be buying like the rights to like, you know, this is the second one we've seen now, so I'm not, I'm, I won't be surprised if we see them buying the rights to more kind of classic 
IPs to make into TV shows. Um, but yeah, System Shock, um, a live action TV series. Now, I'm not too familiar with System Shock. And for some reason, I felt like Ravi was like a really big fan of it. But I was, I've, got, I've got it mixed up. Um, somewhere down the line, but it's, yeah. it's one that passed me by, you know, because oh, it was it? like it was it was before Half Life and Bioshock, wasn't it? It was one of the early well, like Doom era, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 ninety four System Shock. Yeah, and I think there was a remake, and we covered that. Um, but yeah, it really passed me by System Shock. But I hear it is a a cult classic. Yeah, so it's set in the year twenty seventy two, and it's a rogue AI it's causing chaos. Uh, and making killer killer cyborgs and killer mutants. So it sounds right up my street, especially for like a TV show as well. Um, and we can be expecting it just in some time in 2022, apparently. But like, you know, we've not really spoke about them, but like there's the, you know, because it's not retro, but there's like the Last of Us TV show um, being made at the moment, which is like got big Hollywood actors in it and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe with all these like games which flops for Hollywood that got made into films. They're looking at TV shows now. Maybe Don't that's forget like your Mario movie as well. Yeah, yeah, Mario movie's coming as well, isn't it? Like, we've, you know, we've not really spoke about that much, but, you know, it just seems like a lot of these, like, Netflix and stuff, there's a Netflix Resident Evil show coming out, there's a, ne- there's a Resident Evil film reboot coming out next month, but, like, Netflix are doing a TV show as well, so it's just, I feel like a lot of these studios are trying to, trying their kind of jumping back into like the video game scene but they're like let's do some tv shows with it instead because the films can't do it justice in like an hour and a half or two hours because we've got these massive games so they want to put it on the screen for six hours or eight hours maybe that's what they're trying to do or maybe they're just trying to make quick money who knows i'm waiting for the bubsy yeah (laughs) coming to you from binge in 2022 (laughs) i can't imagine that franchise rise of the robots (laughs) yeah bubsy versus rise of the robots actually i think rise of the robots would make a really good tv series you know the story behind that you know this futuristic robot there's a story there's a story in rise of the robots if you've sat through those cutscenes, Joe, which is the only impressive bit of that game actually i think it could be a terminator-esque kind of thing with with a brian may soundtrack (laughs) <laughs> yeah two seconds of it whatever it was um but yeah that that is very interesting apparently the new version of this game you know we talked about the system shock remake apparently it was due out this summer but it's been delayed oh, okay. never saying it's still going to be out at some point this year maybe they're tying it so it's kind of you know a promotional vehicle for the games yeah maybe yeah which would make sense, I guess. But um, yeah, it's always interesting, especially kind of niche stuff like that. So it does kind of feel like the main things have kind of been done to death now. So it is interesting that they're digging down these more, you know, specialist franchises and games to um, develop into TV series. So um, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm looking at this thing like, I've never played that game before. I'd like to give it a try now. Yeah, I want to give it a try now. Maybe that can be my Halloween game instead. So if you want to read more about that, I'll put it in our show notes. And everything else we talked about this week, you'll find it all in your podcast app or on our website at theretrohour.com. Now let's give a huge thank you to the people that keep this podcast going week in, week out. And of course, this is our wonderful patrons who will be able to watch episode 300 of the Retro Hour podcast live this weekend. On Halloween. (laughs) Now, of course, uh, we do have Patreon for several reasons. I mean, we we mention it every week, but really it is so important, you know, for this show. Um, And I think at the time recording this, we're up to 251 patrons now, which is just amazing. But of course, there's always room for lots more as well. You know, if you want to get involved in this, not only can you watch episode 300 live this weekend and get involved in it too, you also get access to our monthly patrons-only podcast. Uh, The most recent one we recorded um, last week, actually, it's out now. We went back to the year 1998 and that was loads of fun. 
Yeah, there was a surprising amount for us to talk about. I was a little bit worried about it, but you and Ravi just started making loads of notes on it pre-show. I usually bring, wing it. But yeah, there were so many big releases and big things that happened in 98. But I always just go straight to console, but you guys, you know, you go outside. Of, well, for me, it feels like going outside of the box, but you guys talk about Windows and everything like that. It all blends crazy. into one usually, but then yeah. when we actually like pick the years, it like helps me sort my memories out. I'm yeah, like, oh yeah, 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 that happened. That's <laughs> <laughs> why we do it to piece Ravi's life together. Yeah. <laughs> so you can check that out as well. The latest episode is available now. Um, you also get the usual podcast early most weeks. You get it ad free as well. You get extra content in there. We've done two extra stories for our patrons this week, and also. You get access to the monthly hangouts as well. Now, these are always so much fun. Oh, yeah, they're great fun. Like, somebody described it as sitting around a, a kind of pub table and mm. as all chatting. Mm. And, and that's what it feels like. It's just like a giant kind of pub. And there's quite a few people having a drink on there and just having a chat. And it's it's just really nice fun. And, you know, people get their consoles out and they kind of, their systems, any problems, they help each other. But then also any, like, suggestions or, or any kind of memories that come up and uh you know it does it does last quite a long while we we go into late at night don't we it's uh good fun yeah yeah good yeah for and also supporting the show you help us you know keep independent because we're literally free free dudes just doing this and uh we're all doing this from our homes and it's just absolutely fantastic you know the support that you guys give us yeah, and you've got us to episode 300, so we've got to say a huge thank you. And uh, let's give a shout to some of our wonderful patrons this week. Uh, a big hello to uh, James Greenhorn. Mark Cave Allen. Klaus Lindgren. Phil Goodson. And Jonathan Harrington. Who all backed us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, we'll see you this weekend for episode 300. You'll find it on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we get into this week's special guest, Rob Reinard talking about Rainbow Studios, those incredible Motocross Madness games. Let's give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our wonderful friends at Retro Gamer Magazine. Now, we've said it before, if you enjoy our podcast, you need to be reading Retro Gamer. Before I was doing the Retro Hour, I was reading Retro Gamer. It's such an awesome magazine and, you know, it comes from the legendary Future Publishing as well. And I've been following them since I was a kid, really. God, yeah, Amiga Format, Amiga Power. I used to read from them as well. Superplay, they used to do back in the day too. Um, legendary British publishing house, and they do Retro Gamer every month. And actually, I'm looking through the current issue right now. Um, the cover feature is about the Evercade VS, the Evercade Versus, which um, I know we've been really excited about. We did an entire episode about that, didn't we? This is now the, uh, the couch gaming version of the Evercade, where you can have two players on there and play a load of classic arcade games. Yeah, the Evercade seems really cool. It's... Um actually bringing kind of carts back and you know uh, you, you're getting the games picked for you and uh, it's really awesome to see these kind of new developments in the retro world i love the fact it's bringing back couch gaming as well so there's a whole feature on that and um, they're also talking about um command and conquer red alert 2 there's a big feature oh, on that. one of my favorite titles yeah they've got the um the super nintendo quick look back at the um the sns 101 revision of the super nintendo they got really in depth on that um talking about how aladdin on the Master System was really impressive. Uh, they've got a feature all about gaming on the BBC Master. Um, talking about DMA design in the N64 years as well. So, I mean, there's so much in here. Mr. Biffo and Ian Lee do uh, monthly features as well that are really interesting, their columns. Mr. Biffo has uh, played The Secret of Monkey Island for the first time. <laughs> kind of gives his thoughts on that as well. So, it is an essential read, and there is also a lovely tribute 
to Sir Clive Sinclair. So if you don't read Retro Gamer already, you really need to. Or if you just buy it from the supermarket, why don't you subscribe instead? Make sure you get it every month. You get it early, actually. And also, you will get this fantastic retro bit controller now um there's actually a couple you can pick from here uh, you could have a free n64 tribute or a mega drive bluetooth controller now if you've been playing the uh the classic games on the switch and you've got n64 and mega drive games on there works with the switch you can also use it on um, windows mac raspberry pi ios as well and also the tribute 64 controller actually has a classic n64 port so you can use it on your original system as well so perfect to get some retro gaming in throughout the autumn and winter this year and if you'd like to get hold of six months of retro gamer magazine and also get this special gift completely free Support the podcast by using our link, magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. That's six months of Retro Gamer with a retro controller absolutely free at magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And a huge thank you to our friends at Retro Gamer for their support of our show. Right next, it's time to get some incredible stories on the development of games like Motocross Madness 1 and 2, Inside Rainbow Studios, Microsoft's gaming division in the late 90s, early 2000s, with our special guest, Rob Reinard, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event, then our favourite part of the show, where we welcome on a very special guest. And today, getting some incredible stories of, you know, Rainbow Studios, extreme sports games, Motocross Madness, of course, we're going to talk lots about as well. Let's welcome on our special guest this week, the wonderful Rob Reinard. Hello, Rob. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you on the show. Now, before we get into the uh, stories of these incredible games that you've worked on, through your career so far. I mean, we always like to kind of wind things back to day one and find out, you know, how things uh, started for you. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into video games and where it all began? Yeah, certainly. I mean, so, you know, like my first computer was a Heathkit H89, which meant it came in a bunch of boxes and you had to put it together. And so I spent days assembling it. So before I, I... I wrote any code. I knew what a CPU and RAM and the motherboard was and the video connector. Um, so I was like, well, okay, this is great, but how do, how do I make it do something? Like, it's just, it's a big doorstop. So um, one of the first games I worked on making um, was Snake. Just, you know, the little text-based game where you drive the snake around and eat uh, eat the X's on the screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly Zork. Zork was a big influence on me early early on. And then down at our, our, our company headquarters, we had a mainframe that had that um, original Star Trek game on it. I think it was like an IBM System 34 or something like that. But it had the original text-based Star Trek game on it. And uh, I was just fascinated by it, uh, utterly fascinated. And yeah, so were you kind of constructing that yourself then? And uh, were you, was it a bit of an expensive bit of kit and were you worried that uh, you kind of wreck it? Well, so I lived on an airport and we had an avionics department in there and those guys were building them 
repeatedly. And I sat around bugging everybody. And at some point, they finally said, here, just be quiet and put this together. So I think they did it more just to get me to quit bugging them than anything. But uh, yeah, those were like, I don't know, almost $2,000 computers for back. And this would be what, 1981? You know, the, it came with a whole bunch of uh, early Microsoft products. So I had all these gray binders of uh, basic, COBOL, assembly. Oh, and what was their pre-Excel spreadsheet called? Was it, was it multi-plan? Oh, they had a spreadsheet. Well, now you, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, they had a spreadsheet that, that predated Excel. Oh, and then that database. Boy, what was that database called? Some crazy early database. So anyway, I had binders of all that. So I ended up learning basic C, COBOL, and assembly language um, right out of the gate, uh, just because those were all the, all the stuff that came with the computer. And what kind of stuff were you programming then? What, what programs were you making? Well, I spent almost a year with my buddy uh, Lamar, and we were big fans of Zork. So we made a, a text processor or parser and created what we called the ultimate adventure game. And it was just, we had diagrams mapped out all over the walls and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it, it was just a, a text space, you know, move the rug, open the trap door, um, descend down the stairs, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it was pretty much a ripoff of Zork, but we were we were all consumed with it for a good solid year. You know, Text Adventure is a pretty hardcore game to jump in early on because I remember trying to make one as a kid and, you know, not factoring in just all the sheer decisions, you know, that the user can make and having to pass all that language is, you know, very complicated really, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I remember we took a trip across the country and I sat in the backseat of the car with a notebook and it was about four days out and four days back. And in that in that eight days, um, I filled the notebook with design sketches and floor plans and you know every everything that was in my head and then and then it took us a year to bring it to life but all the kids at the school it was it was really part of what made me realize that i could entertain people um because mm. you know i brought it in on a floppy i gave it to some kids and i'm like oh, here it is you know whatever i don't know you know i have no idea and then i come in the computer room the next day and every single computer in the entire lab the kids were playing it and i'm like oh wow i'm, I'm on to something here i i can entertain people did you end up kind of distributing it like for sale at all or, or nope, anything like I, that? I didn't. Um, I was pretty consumed with aviation back then. I said I lived on, on an airport. Um, and really at that time, aviation was my life and computers were my hobby. So, uh, um, yeah, I spent uh, quite a bit of time flying every day. Well, when did that change then? When did you decide um, to join the industry and make a go of it? Yeah, so when I left Douglas, Arizona, which is a place no, nobody wants to go, um, it's down on the border and came to Phoenix, went to uh, a year of a year of college. And I remember in my second semester, I spoke to my my guidance counselor and I said, you know, this is just not working for me. You, you guys are teaching me the past and I want to learn the future. You know, they were they were it was all vaxes and mainframes and accounting relating programming, which was 90 percent of the world's computer programming jobs in 85, 86. So that yeah. made sense. But I, I'll never forget. I went into him and I said, you know, I want to learn the future, you know, like pixels. And he looked at me and he goes, what's a pixel? And I knew in that moment that uh, college was not for me. It just wasn't going to lead to where I wanted to go. So, um, you know, like most disappointments, I quit. And uh, delivered pizzas for two years while I sat in my crappy little apartment. And I bought this big hardback book called Principles of Computer Graphics. And it was like a $70 book even back then. I bought it, couldn't understand it, and returned it. About eight months later, I bought it a second time, 
kind of understood it, returned it. A year later, I bought it and I actually got it. Like I, I, I understood the math at that point and viewing frustrums and projections and the basics of a 3D rendering engine and all that. Um, and it was starting to click. So um, that's about the time I heard of 3D Studio and, you know, Autodesk's not 3DS Max, but 3DS DOS. And um, I sought out the Arizona distributor of Autodesk products. His name was Mike Davis. And he introduced me to a, a gentleman named Earl Jared, who was the founder of Rainbow Studios. And I'll never forget, I walked in that office and there were two copies of those purple boxes of the documentation sitting up on the shelf. And um, Earl didn't know it, but I mean, I, I would have paid him for the chance to work there. Um, lear learning that software and learning 3D Studio was everything I wanted in life at that point. So, you know, that, that was the start, um, meeting Earl, coming in. And they were not a video game company. Rainbow Studios, it was called Rainbow, Rainbow Multimedia Group. And it was a, uh, uh, excuse me, an animation. We did animations and logos and stuff like that for, uh, for big companies. And we did vertical market applications. Like we did a, a history of technology thing for Pioneer that they ran in their corporate headquarters. And we did some elevator project for another company, but it had nothing to do with video games. Um, but I told Earl, I said, um, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to work here, but my, the destiny of my life is to make video games and I'm either going to do it here or do it somewhere else. And Earl, much to his credit, said, what do you need? And I said, I need a math genius. I go, I'm good at math, but I'm not a math genius. And he went out and found uh, Mark DeSimone, who is a brilliant mathematician and programmer. And uh, that was the that was the start of um, heading down the path of making games. Um, um, we met Kelly Flock from Sony. He came out and uh, met all the guys and basically greenlit Air Havoc and greenlit The Hive all in all in one sit down. He had a movie and they had this they had this robot movie they wanted us to make a game of. But um, Rebel Assault had just come out. The Star Wars Rebel Assault, like the first CD yeah, bomb yeah. streaming game. And we just wouldn't shut up about it. We're like, Rebel Assault's amazing. My God, Rebel Assault, Rebel Assault. And uh, Kelly, um, again, Kelly was, I don't know if you guys knew Kelly Flock. Great, great guy. You know, huge figure in the industry. He just said, screw it. Forget the robot game. Let's, let's, make, a, let's make a Rebel Assault game. And of course, that became The Hive. Well, um, let's, let's just go back a bit. Because like when you joined Rainbow, I guess it was all MS-DOS machines as well. And, and was that the kind of area that you you guys were aiming for and uh you know you know there was a whole flight simulator scene as well uh, was that something that really interested you oh absolutely you know i i played yeah bruce artwick's flight sim man i played it originally on the trs-80 when it was just white pixels on a black screen and you were hard pressed to tell what you were looking at but yeah utterly fascinated by that from day one the stuff we were doing there on the dos machines you know it was all quick basic and quick c um, 3DS, DOS. Uh, we all had these Targa cards for putting on for displaying stuff. You know, for high res graphics. Um, and then of course Autodesk Animator. You know, the two the 2D Autodesk Animator. Uh, we used that for first few years and, doing just tons of stuff. And I assume that was kind of really before like big 3D acceleration. So like um, Air Havoc Control, like from what I've seen for it, it had some really impressive 3D models. And, uh, you know, this was on like Windows 3.1. So was this really quite hard to achieve, especially with uh, people having like massively varied different setups? 
Yeah, so we licensed all the uh, 3D models from Viewpoint and all of the videos, I think they were Cinepak compressed videos, um, which is like the world's worst compression, but that's all we had back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I remember Cinepak, yeah. It was that, or what was it, AV1, like Microsoft Video 1 or something like that. It was just utterly terrible. So yeah, all the videos were uh, compressed using Cinepak. So basically it would play on um, any computer that had a CD-ROM. Interestingly enough, um, I love telling people this. Everybody says it's impossible to create a retail distributed game produced in Visual Basic, but Air Havoc was written top to bottom in Visual Basic. And uh, that that was kind of a, a game where you're a air traffic controller and you know, you've got loads of people flying into the zone and, and you've got to kind of move planes around, planes can crash and stuff like that. Um, did you take a lot of experience from your kind of flight history and uh, knowing about that? Uh, and you know, add it to you the know game? like everything else, it's a matter of simplifying it, right? You know, from air traffic control to driving a motocross bike, it's about delivering the fantasy. If what you were trying to deliver actually reflected reality, nobody could drive the bike and almost nobody could, you know, navigate all the planes. It's fairly sophisticated. So, you know, I, I think one of the gifts that for whatever reason I have is an ability to take a complex subject matter and simplify it down to a core in a way that a broad base of people will find fun. And nobody taught me that. It's just something I seem to be able to do. Um, so if I can work with um, really, really talented physics programmers, you know, Rick Baltman and our, our, our terrain engine and engine maker, Mark DeSimone, um, pair me up with those guys and, you know, we can work magic. And yeah, some of those games were like massively complex. I remember Elite and I don't think I could even get the uh, thing off the ground. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, you're right about simplicity there. Uh, you, you mentioned Rebel Assault as well. Like that, that, that was an amazingly impressive title. Kind of having those um, 3D models uh you know over the top of a video and stuff like that uh, was that the first time you kind of seen that technology yeah we were blown away by it like i say we wouldn't shut up talking to kelly about it yeah he had the foresight to let us follow our, our passion and we spent i don't know about 20 months working on the hive it was about a 15 person effort and our, our first real because i kind of made air havoc by myself like i i certainly had help there was a handful of the artists that helped me push through stuff, but um, uh, the Hive was our, our first real team effort that we had to create the engine. Um, you know, Mark did this great stuff where we had panoramas and you could be in a, a full 360 panorama and it had exit points where if you looked the camera at the correct angle, it would then seamlessly pop into a video where you could leave the panorama and stream somewhere else. And, you know, that was the early days of that. Not to mention that, you know, the Hive shipped um, on DirectX 1. If I'm not mistaken, the Hive was the very first DirectX game ever to ship. While we were late in development, the DX guys would send us source code of DirectX and we would send them source of the hive and we'd both cross compile it and like they were testing out some of our stuff and we were testing out some of their stuff um but uh yeah as far as i know the the hive was the the very first direct x 1.0 game to ship and that got uh ported like later onto the playstation as well didn't it yeah you know the, the playstation and we kind of started on playstation 2 now now uh, one of our programmers glenn o'bannon he ported the hive over to ps1 but um, as a team, we didn't, uh, ATV Off-Road Fury was our first PS2 title. 
and it, it was a launch title, I believe in the fall of 2000. But when it showed up, it was a bunch of circuit boards wired inside a purple SGI iris with about 5,000 pages of documentation in Japanese. Wow. And I mean, what are we even supposed to do with it? So we had one Japanese programmer, Hiro, great guy. And um, he did his best to help us translate the documentation. But I'll never forget, about three months into working on it, Travis paged everybody, you know, come to Travis's office, come to Travis's office. We all run down there and <laughs> he rasterized a triangle. So he actually got the thing to draw a single triangle on the screen and we were all standing around high-fiving each other and whatnot. So that that's how hard it was not having final hardware or any documentation in English um, just to get the thing to do something. Well, let's talk about motocross madness. I mean, everyone's going to be you know really interested to hear these stories, Rob. Um, and obviously, a couple of years before that game, Road Rash, I remember being a massive series. I mean, was there any influence from Road Rash when you were designing Motocross Madness? Yeah, you know, I was a big fan of Road Rash. I played it to death, but it really didn't bear any influence on the design. So the way MCM came about was um, a close friend of mine named Travis Riffle. He handed me a videotape called uh, Krusty Demons of Dirt. Um, and in fact, M MCM1 was called Project Krusty with a K inside Microsoft. This was some of the early motocross guys out jumping in the dunes and doing insane stuff. And the, the early, early freestyle guys, like this was before anybody had the courage to try to backflip a motorcycle. But we watched it. And, and actually, you know what? I should back up a tick before that. So two years before that, I would not shut up to the guys at Rainbow. I said, look, we, we have to make a, a skateboard game. Skateboard is just... It's just awesome, and it's begging to be done right. There was um, an, an Atari stand-up arcade game called, was it Skate 360? I think I'm getting the name wrong. But it had this off-axis joystick you could spin and a button. Um, it was made by the same guys that made Paperboy. Um, 720, I think it was called. 720. 720, yeah, 720, exactly. Not Skate 360. So, uh, yeah, 720 was my inspiration, man. We loved that game. And they actually told me to be quiet. Like after like two years of just not shutting up about we got to make a skateboard game. They're like, be quiet. We went to E3. And what did we see at E3 that year? Tony Hawk 1.0. <laughs> it was instantly massive. And so I think that fueled a little bit the notion that, yeah, this extreme sports thing is actually a thing. So when I showed everybody the Krusty Demons of Dirt video, everybody agreed it was cool. But then coupled with the success of Tony Hawk, I think that pushed everyone into a, a position where they felt like this this could become a something. So, yeah, that that got us started. And at that same time, Mark DeSimone had been developing our terrain engine. It had a funny name. We called it Aardvark, Advanced Animation Research Development at Rainbow. The K is silent. So we had just uh, we were just in the middle of developing this terrain engine that would allow you to go somewhat great distances. And when I say great distances, I mean a mile. Um, but for back then, a mile was like a big deal. And so, yeah, Glenn O'Bannon got assigned being the physics programmer, and he and I started working on getting a bike to drive on Mark's new terrain engine. And again, like you guys said, it was the very earliest uh, video cards, Voodoo 3D effects cards. That was the state of the art, the very, very first 3D cards ever to hit the market. It was They were so weak, we couldn't even afford to draw trees. So if you remember, MCM1 was just a barren landscape, no trees whatsoever. Mm. 
And do you think, I mean, obviously that around that time, 1998, like you mentioned, that was kind of when people were starting to get 3D accelerated cards. Do you think Motocross Madness was actually a, a bit of an instigator for people upgrading their machines and to play the game? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, we, we sold quite a few million copies of it, you know, coupled with that tilt controller that Microsoft came up with. That really drove sales as well. And I know late in the, late in the cycle, life cycle of MCM1, they bundled uh, that tilt controller with the game. And I remember it selling quite a few copies. Well, like you mentioned there, it was that kind of voxel landscape and uh, and it was pretty bare as well. I, I remember a Magic Carpet was another one like that. And you're right about the 3D Accelerator. It also came at the time of the Pentiums. Was, was, was the Pentium a kind of big change and uh, specifically programming for that? Yeah, um, it was. I remember the, the voxel game that we were really impressed by was Comanche. We played the snot out of that game. You know, Magic Carpet was really cool, but as far as time, time spent in the, with the joystick, Comanche and what was that other one? Oh, Apache, Interactive Magic's Apache. Um, not the EA Apache, but Interactive Magic Apache. Man, we played, the, we played that game to death too. That was right around the same time as, as Motocross Madness 1. Well, the thing I loved about it was, for me, it was the first kind of experience where I could just drive anywhere. It was like total freedom. You know, you weren't set on a track. Some some levels you were and you were going around, but there were different modes. And uh, did, did this kind of become a big selling point, the fact that you could just go anywhere and totally, you know, make it your own game? Yeah, at that time, you know, kids had just not really ever played a game that gave you the freedom to go that far. And of course, you know, we ran, we ran into the, the game design dilemma. What happens when you get to the edge of the world? We had so many arguments about it. It was a fence or this hand of God that kind of flicks you back and stuff. And um, I wanted to do the cannonball, but basically the management at Rainbow was summarily opposed to it. But late one Friday night, I just walked down to Glenn's office. I handed him a sound effect. I said, Glenn, when we get when we get to you know the perimeter, just give the bike and the rider two different, ever ever to so slightly different vector, um, you know, smacks, and then fire off this sound effect with it. We did it, showed it to everybody on Monday, and it was kind of a mixed response. Some people liked it, some people loved it, but then kids came in, and it became the the landmark feature of the game. Um, <laughs> it, young, young kids would climb that hill. And, you know, it's kind of a battle to get up the hill in the first place. Yeah. So they would, they would battle and hill climb to get up there. And then your reward is to get shot halfway around the world. And I've, I've seen kids do it 20 times in a row and just giggle themselves silly. It's, it's such a good feature. And, you know, that whole series and, and even into ATV and stuff, it's like that, that feature remained. And, it, and it's just uh, so much fun. It's ridiculous. Yeah, for as well as it was received, there's no way we could take it out. We'd we'd get crucified if we did. You know, I've uh, played some games GTA Online, and people find glitching sections like on the swings, uh, where they can fire themselves across a map in exactly that style, and it's just, uh, yeah, really, really good fun that is. And obviously, um, Motocross Madness was published by Microsoft. How did they get involved then? And did they see this as like a new range of software, particularly with Windows 98 kind of? coming out around the same time did they want to have these kind of cool sporty titles yeah so you know our relationship with microsoft started with the hive um because of our close close ties with the dx team um so that kind of got us in with them um mark's aardvark terrain engine was you know was really revolutionary for its time we probably had it running end of 96 early 97 
and Microsoft took wind of that. There was talk of Microsoft buying Rainbow at that time, but I think we ended up signing a three-game deal for the first of which was Microsoft Deadly Tide, which was another um, streaming panorama-based game Kind, it, not a sequel to the Hive, but the same, the evolution of the technology with a completely new story. Um, Tony Stutterheim and Bruce Hall came in. They were some of Steven Spielberg's guys at Amblin Imaging. They came in, designed this whole underwater world. And Rainbow was actually pushing to um, raise the funding to make a Blue Planet um, CGI movie um, at the same time. So uh, Deadly Tide was kind of meant to be a precursor to the Blue Planet movie, but we just never got the funding. You know, we were trying to get, I don't know, 50 or $60 million, which is quite, quite an endeavor. But so we made Deadly Tide. It, and you know, Microsoft had signed a three-game deal with us. Deadly Tide didn't do so well. I think they canceled the whole thing. Um, but then we, we maintained you know, close ties with them and we were showing them what we were up to. But then when we showed them the, the Motocross Madness demo, you know, they, they were really into it. And, and of course, they saw the success of Tony Hawk and they had their own Madness series, right? Monster Truck Madness had come out in 97, I think. Could have even been 96 because I think they had a software rasterized version of uh, Monster Truck Madness before hardware came out. Yeah, it was 96. Yeah, I just looked. Yeah, and it was on the N6. It was huge on the N64, like just absolutely huge. So, um, you know, that gave them an appetite for, I don't know, more madness. And Microsoft, or uh, sorry, Motocross fell into that. And I guess it was like Microsoft trying to define themselves after the flight simulators as well. You mentioned like the Sidewinder freestyle controller there. Um, do, do you think that was them trying to kind of unify uh, the gaming standards uh, to, to, to kind of become a gaming platform like long before the xbox yeah sure i mean the the sidewinder controller that the whole series those are some of my favorite controllers yeah we we used those for a long time certainly the the very first um force feedback controller from microsoft that was just an excellent controller and you know there's this demo that they had that nobody remembers and i can't ever find it was a string and a ball and you could bounce the ball on this string using the force feedback controller and it was the best example of force feedback I'd ever seen them still to this day. And I can't find the demo to save my life. Well, the sound effects were obviously a big part of the game as well. Um, how were they made and were they taken from real recordings? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit of an audiophile. I'm crazy for good sound in the car, in the house, on the desktop, wherever. And it really frustrated me that there never seemed to be somebody with great passion for developing the audio. So I just decided to do it myself. Um, I knew nothing about it, but I started researching and learning, you know, recording techniques and whatnot. So uh, what we came up with, and again, thanks to Stefan Roncata, the pro writer and a few of his friends, we went out in the desert, found a flat section, took a 100 foot piece of rope. And then I stood in the middle and they walked out a big circle around me. Um, and they were like shuffling, shuffling their feet uh, going along so we could clearly see where, where the circle was. And then we laid out orange pylon cones to make a perfect circle. And then I stood in the middle with the parabolic dish like you see at football games. Yeah. And um, the guys would ride clockwise around me so that the, the, the tailpipe would point kind of inwards towards me. And um, we just developed a series of um, like I, I would have them go. Uh, from a start and go first, second gear, stop, 
first, second gear, stop. And then we do a whole, then 25 times we do second, third, fourth gear, second, third, fourth gear. And we do, like, we do that for 20 minutes. And as soon as I destroy one rider, he's getting so tired he couldn't do it, we'd fire up the next rider. And we did the 125s, the two-stroke two, 250s, the four-stroke 400s. And we were out there five days probably with guys driving in circles around me. But, um, and then I just came back and cut it up and found ways to hook, hook the samples together. The nice thing about motocross bikes, unlike uh, like a Forza car on a road track, the back tire on a motocross bike is shaking all over the place. So the engine's going, brah, rah, 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 rah. like it's, it's, it's not just brah, accelerating smoothly. So um, in that context, you can cleverly cut stuff up so that you create categories of sound and then a simple state engine to make it uh, sequence sounds within a category in a logical way. And then you have, you know, D cell sounds every time the bike leaves the ground, play, play one of several um, brrrm sounds um, as though you let go of the gas. And then the hardest part was actually making the revving in the air sounds, Re- revving in the air and holding it at, at red line and letting go. That was, those were some of the hardest sounds to develop. That was a blast, like going out and learning the foundations of field recording and doing that. That was the time of my life learning about all that. That attention to detail as well really helps because, I mean, I've played so many games where you get a stock engine sound and it just, the experience doesn't feel right. And I think a lot of developers kind of overlook the importance of audio sometimes and the focus too much on the graphics. Yeah. I mean, we have the old saying, right? Um, audio is 50% of the experience and 5% of the budget. Yeah. And so it's sadly true. But, you know, I, I kind of forced the audio experience in, in the games at Rainbow and after the first few games where the, the audio was becoming you know, more highly regarded, it just kind of became an expectation. You know, some of our other guys, Dan Gallagher and Mark Stratford, audio guys that came in and took over the audio as we grew, they worked very hard to you know, maintain and improve that standard that was set with some of the early games. And I um, guess uh, that was one thing that was getting upgraded at the time as well. So people were going to like 4.1 kind of audio setup. So having, you know, people approaching you at the side and uh, and being able to hear that from the different angles um, must have been really, really impressive. The biggest advancements I ever did on the audio side actually came a number of years later. So Rick Baltman and I developed five generations of a physics-based audio system that connected the audio directly to the inputs and outputs of the physics engine. But later on, when we were doing um, trophy trucks and off-road buggies and stuff, I would actually use 16 mics. I'd have eight mics up around the engine and eight mics back by the pipe. The vehicle's engine itself was comprised of, um, I called it an engine stack. So um, a collection of loops from idle all the way to redline for the engine and a collection of loops from idle to redline for the tailpipe. As it drove towards you and came past you, you could clearly hear the difference from the engine sound coming at you to the pipe sound as it drove away from you. And then even when you got in and out of the throttle, um, I would vary the mix between the engine and the pipe so that when you're in the throttle, you're getting engine. And when you dump the throttle, you'd get pipe. You kind of get that blowback sound during deceleration. So yeah, that, that stuff was a blast to develop. I think I ended up recording over 150 different race cars on the dyno. Well, another, another aspect of it that was really huge and good fun back then were LAN games. Did you ever have any uh, big motocross madness LAN parties? <laughs> um, guys, it, it, it got out of control. We started <laughs> doing Friday nights, you know, so we could do eight, eight players at a time in MCM. And um, Friday nights, folks started from around Phoenix, started showing up at the studio 
and we'd race until 10 a.m. or noon on Saturday. I mean, there was there was a lot of smoking and drinking and playing going on for many, many hours. We'd get two or three groups of eight people racing at once. And it got to where um, I had a friend, Roger. He owned a racetrack in New Mexico. He would drive 10 hours just to come over here and play. Wow. Guys drove in from from L.A. Some of Steph's friends and whatnot, they would come in from L.A. to play. And then... Um, Stephen Cameron, he ran a big Xbox gaming site. He lives in Canada. A couple times a year, he'd hop a flight and fly down to Phoenix just to hang out and, and race with us. So, yes, we did a lot of it, and it got out of control. Well, the ragdoll effects and the crashes, I mean, they were great fun in the game and, you know, hilarious as well. I mean, was it a huge focus on getting them as kind of realistic as possible? Yeah, you know, at first we had no idea. We were focused on make the bike fun to drive, make a fun racing game, well-designed racetracks. But then all of a sudden, when we would crash, we found ourselves laughing hysterically when it was a particularly violent crash. So that just woke us up. And we watched we watch kids play. And, you know, some of them, they would just crash the bike over and over and over. So, yeah, that, that refocused our attention. And we spent a lot more time creating different presets of animation so that we had like an, an over the handlebars animation and over the left side, over the right side. High, we call it high siding. And then the, the come, come down straight too hard and just, you know, bottom out the suspension and go flying. So we ended up with like six different categories of animations because it proved to be so incredibly entertaining. And we, we knew after, like after that, we spent probably more time on the rider than we did on the bike. Well, Motocross Madness 2, um, even though it was only two years later, it kind of felt like the industry you know, and technology was moving really fast around that time. Um, and obviously you had the improved graphics, you, know, you had trees and stuff in there as well, over 40 tracks in that game too. It felt like a much more complete package. How did you improve the engine of the original game and take advantage of this you know, more powerful hardware that people had then? Yeah, so the, uh, as far as the ground goes, we were able to do um, multi-texture layers, so we had like a high resolution texture for the ground. And then we had a low resolution detail texture that tiled that added a depth that made it look like the ground was just higher resolution everywhere. Um, certainly the trees and the ecosystem was a big deal. I think, and I'm kind of fuzzy on these numbers. Mark would probably yell at me, but I think we had upwards of a hundred thousand trees out there. Mm. So going from zero to a hundred thousand was, was quite a number. Actually, I remember one day we were, we were at Microsoft demoing it for Bill Gates First, I had the Microsoft guys gave me a bet that I couldn't say shrubbery more uh, more than five times in the demo. <laughs> um, so I, I kept pointing out the amazing shrubberies to Bill as we were driving. And here's here's a different style of shrubbery here for you to for you to see. And then at one, we were running a debug build, and in the debug build, the camera collision against the ground was shut off, so that the debug the artists could um, take the camera down below the ground and look up at things because sometimes it helped you see errors that were hard to see from above the ground. And we're riding along and, you know, Bill doesn't say a lot in the demos. He's just looking for something to nitpick. So we're driving along and I, I like driving with the camera down real low. And I, I clipped the side of a hill and it just for a split second, it went under the ground. He goes, what was that? And I go, oh, um, and I, I saw the like Microsoft team just freak out. Like they, they were utterly terrified that Bill was going to light them up for something. Yeah. And I stopped. And I go, oh, actually, check this out. This is kind of cool. So I stopped and I put the camera completely under the ground and flew it around. And I'm like, well, from under the ground. So, you know, the, 
it would when you're under the ground the terrain shuts off because the 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 normals all just face up you can get a good idea of the density of all of our shrubbery that we have down here from below the below the ground and um and then the microsoft guys are back there laughing and bill's like oh that's cool this is completely amazing and you're like yeah thanks and you know put the camera back up and took off but there was like one second there that they thought that oh no you know this this is the end end of our career because bill's about to drop the hammer on us well, you know, uh, Tony Hawk's, you know, they had a, an amazing soundtrack and it kind of provided the extra level of cool. Like you guys ended up having Incubus on uh, Motocross Madness too. How, how did that deal happen? And uh, did you ever meet them? And were they like into the game? Yeah, they were, they were super cool. I remember they did a concert up at Red Rocks in uh, Colorado and they had Motocross Madness footage running on big screens behind them the whole time while they were playing. Yeah, it was just, I was a big fan of Incubus at that time. It was kind of out of Microsoft's price range, but I pushed on them and pushed on them. I said, these, these guys just, they embody the attitude of this game, man. They, it goes hand in hand. So, you know, if you can find the money, please, please try to get this for the title track. And they came through, you know, God bless them. It, it worked really well. Well, the level editor, Armadillo, that was really impressive. And I mean, I guess that added a lot of longevity to the game. I mean, where did that idea come from and why did you want to implement that? Yeah, so MCM1 actually had a tile-based track editor where I I pre-created little tiles of... Um, you know, up jump and flat jump and landing jump and all this stuff. And you could lay them out in a grid and, and make super flat supercross tracks. So we were, we were definitely thinking track editor in the first place. But then as the tools developed over that four-year experience, I started work on Armadillo. And then my buddy Pete Reich, he came in and took over the project and, and finished it. But it, it was huge. I mean, we... we we were so pleasantly surprised to see the, the the adoption from the fans of thousands and thousands. I think at one point the one website that had all the all the user tracks hosted, I think there was upwards of fifteen thousand tracks up there. Guys really went nuts with it, and it certainly added several years of longevity to the game. Now, the downside from a business perspective is, were I to do it today. I think the formula is you only put a track editor in the last version of your game. If you think you're going to make a sequel, you're really better off from a business point of view, not putting that track editor out until you believe you're making the final version of the game because it's people are just going to play it to death and it will probably detract from the sales of your sequel. Yeah, there was it, there was an amazing amount of user-created content. Like Those fan sites had tons of stuff. And, uh, you know, people could create customized skins as well and stuff. And it, this was so early on. You know, people people were uh, just downloading off simple websites and stuff. Um, did, did you think that really built a community around it as well? Hugely so. Yeah, remember the, the precursor to Xbox Live was The Zone. And so, yeah, there was just so much activity in in there folks talking about and exchanging ideas and and jerseys and links to their sites and their new content you know the the early days of social media was super cool what it's devolved into today i don't really want much to do with but uh the early days of social media were fun when it was just i guess more naive well obviously multiplayer um was part of much cross madness too via the msn network which um was very ahead of its time you know stuff like leaderboards and tag game and custom number plates it was a bit like a a precursor to xbox live i guess in a way what was it like implementing that it actually took some genius math motocross ran inside of a two kilobit bandwidth the the multiplayer stuff they wanted us to run in on 
less than 9,600 baud modems very efficiently. And we actually got the bandwidth for all eight bikes to fit inside of, and this is at like 30 Hertz, um, to fit inside of 2K. And there was some, there was some very tricky math going on in there to make that work. Well, another bit that I like was, um, I hope I say this right, was the Baja races. And um, they were kind of like really huge long ones. Were these based on, on real races then? Not really. We just uh, took the um, the Supercross Worlds and I'd drive around out there for a few hours until I found a big old loop that I thought was fun. Try to find some giant hills where you can actually catch some downsides off some huge jumps rather than just land flat or you know crash. And uh, then we just laid out waypoint gates out there and um, uh, set them up. But it did turn out to be quite fun. But you know, in multiplayer, we had a lot of fun with those those uh, Baja races. Well, um, ATV Off Road Fury was an amazing title as well. Um, and obviously that was, you know, PlayStation 2 would come along by then. How did the PS2 technology help with game creation then? And did it really improve things? And um, what do you think made that game stand out for PS2 users? Well, um, ATV Off Road Fury is when um, a gentleman named Rick Baltman entered my life and, and all of our lives at Rainbow. Rick is an amazing guy. He's so humble and so talented. It's, it's just ridiculous. One of the problems with really smart, really talented math-based programmers is they know they're better than you and me, and it's really hard to, to get them to do what you want. Like you have a vision for something, but they're just so smart and so stubborn that you just can't get out of them what you know the potential is because they have this chip on their shoulder. And that's the exact opposite of Rick. Rick came in and he and I sat down together. He rewrote the physics from scratch for ATV Off-Road Fury. You know, he, he is a physics guy. He came from the, well, actually he worked in the satellite industry. And then he also wrote a package called Real Motion, which folks like uh, Industrial Light and Magic used for lots of their visual effects in movies. And everything blew up or had to break apart or had complex physics to it. That's in, in the early 90s, that was Rick. He was, he was the guy behind all that. So our, our physics programmer on Motocross Madness, Glenn O'Bannon, you know, and I love Glenn. He's one of my closest buddies. He's just a great guy, but he had no experience making physics, I don't believe, ever. So he came in and hit the books and started learning. But the physics in MCM are really clunky compared to the physics in ATV Off-Road Fury. They're so butter smooth and just work so beautifully. It really made the driving experience go to the next level. That combined with we're now in our fifth year of designing tracks, we were able to design premium tracks on a brand new platform that had huge mass appeal with some of the best driving physics you're just, you, know, you could hope for for that time on that platform. Remember, this is 20 years ago now. So, And you know, interestingly, you know, Rick and I found over the years, his solutions became more sophisticated and our imp implementations became more rudimentary. Like the better we got at delivering retail physics that were really fun for everybody to play, under the hood, it was actually getting simpler and simpler. We can design super complex physics, but gosh, it's hard to drive, man. You know, if I deliver realistic physics to you, it's just almost impossible to drive. Um, but we really mastered delivering on the fantasy of riding like Jeremy McGrath or Ricky Carmichael, which was what the kids want, right? They can't ride like Jeremy or Ricky. If they could, they would, but they can't. So delivering on the fantasy in a way that they can they can approach it and relate to it, yeah, that's the magic. And and that's what Rick gave us on Off-Road Fury. 
Well, ATV is obviously in the PlayStation's greatest hits collection. I mean, do you think that game maintained a lot of what made Motocross Madness great, but improved on them? Absolutely. And you know that that whole thing was an interesting experience too, because if you remember the the head of Sony, he was going around at that time going. PlayStation 2 is is the Matrix. It's the it's it's like the Matrix in a box. You're going to be blown away. And the truth was, the PS2 was a little bit more powerful than the PS1. But he had the whole world convinced that the PS2 was the Matrix in a box. <laughs> and so we took Off-Road Fury out, out to LA and we sat behind the mirrors and did the play testing. And I remember kids going like, "What the hell is this?" You know, it it wasn't it wasn't HD. In fact, on PS2 it was like a 360 by 480 frame buffer, something like that, or 480 by 512 frame buffer on, by today's standards, it's total crap. And I remember we got just horribly reviewed. So out of the play test sessions that we did, Sony was convinced that we'd made a flop and they actually had this fireworks game that they put all kinds of advertising behind because in the, their play tests, people just loved it. I think in the end, the fireworks game sold about 75,000 copies and Off-Road Fury sold over $6 million. Nice. But it, it's certainly a good lesson of what people say in playtests versus just you know what they'll, what they'll say in reality when they're by themselves playing. And, and that also had like a, another fantastic metal soundtrack as well, with like Alice in Chains featuring and stuff. Um, uh, you really like went out and got a lot, lot more bands and stuff on that. Yeah, we we had no idea at the time, right? Like, remember, Sony came in because you know S- Sony is also Sony Music, and so Sony America people just went to Sony Music and said, "Hey, what do you got for us?" And they had actually positioned a whole bunch of up and coming huge bands and gave us those songs. We were listening to them at first, and I'm not much of a metal guy, but even the metal guys at at Rainbow, they're like, "What is this? I've never even heard of any of this." And I remember a bunch of sour faces. People were like, this is frustrating. But a year later, those were all mega bands. So, you know, that certainly contributed to its success, too, because um, the Sony music guys knew what they were doing when picking those songs, for sure. And that that series went on and on as well, didn't it, ATV? Like, uh, really, really popular. Yeah, I mean, I have in my closet somewhere a PlayStation 2 that came with a bundle of Off-Road Fury in it. I remember telling the guys, I, I held it up in front of the team and I said, guys, this represents the pinnacle of the industry. There's nowhere to go up from here. We are the game bundled with the most successful console in the world. You know, savor this moment because we're on top at this moment and there's literally nowhere to go. The best we could hope to do is maintain it. And man, I got chewed out for saying that like you can't possibly imagine. But it was true. We were never bundled with another console game as far as I know after that. So yeah, that was that was a, a really good time and a really good place with great great memories. The whole the whole team of guys that that worked on that title, we had to work super hard because the PlayStation Two was this mystery device that you know honestly we didn't even understand some of the most basic tech until Offroad Fury Two. This is a little techy, but things like using DMA buffers to transfer memory from one place to another, it does it asynchronously. And in Off-Road Fury 1, we did it synchronously because we hadn't even figured out uh, DMA buffers at that point. That's how hard it was to develop for that stupid platform. But by Off-Road Fury 2, we were again able to put a bunch more features in because we were still learning about how to use the those vector C, the vector processors. Boy, I'm forgetting what all they were called, but um, yeah, they had all those parallel processors in there that were kind of weird. But once you got a handle on how to use them, you could actually do pretty cool stuff. 
Well, uh, were you involved and uh, what did you think of the uh, Bongfish Motocross Madness release? I remember it was kind of like avatars and uh, heads and stuff like that um, in 2013. Um, I saw it. I actually thought to myself, what has Microsoft done, man? If you're going to make another Motocross Madness, uh, carry it on and make, make a serious game. And that game didn't come across to me as very serious. I would certainly love to have the opportunity to make another motocross game. Yeah, that MX, MX Unleashed was far and away the best game that, that Rick and I ever worked on together from a driving and gameplay point of view. So yeah, when I saw the, the, the MCM3 game that Microsoft put out, I was, I was a little disappointed by it. Yeah, I, 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 I really, um, I've seen a lot of video of people playing Motocross Madness in like 4K uh, 60 frames per second, you know, upscaling it and doing all of this. And uh, I'd, I'd really love to see a, a, a new version one day because it's just such a classic. Yep, we have no shortage of ideas. Well, out of all the games you've worked on, um, this might be a hard question to answer, but um, which do you have the most fond memories of them? Which one have you got the most affection for? Yeah, so as I was just alluding to, MX Unleashed, um, let's see, in 03, THQ came in and bought Rainbow Studios, and then we were become we were part of THQ up until their demise a few years later, and they immediately greenlit another motocross franchise. The two years that we worked on MX Unleashed, that team and that time and place and whatnot, that was uh, far and away my, my favorite development experience. Yeah, you know, we were we were pretty much masters of what we were doing in our space at that time. Our, our tools and our tech were you know eight eight nine years into it. We had an opportunity to break away and do something completely from new, uh, completely brand new, using our basis of experience to to implement it. And um, to this day, I still get guys on Facebook telling me that of all the motocross games ever, even the modern ones, that the first MXU is is still their favorite game. Yeah, it's got a great legacy behind it, and obviously, um, like you said, a massive community of uh, fans behind the game too um what are you up to these days then rob well for the last few years i have been working with a company we're working in it's kind of a i won't say it's a secret project but it's certainly not public we are developing a new form of high-speed internet delivery the tech that we're working on enables you to use um the existing infrastructure that is already in place around the country and I can deliver two gigabit down and two gigabit up for 50 bucks a month. And uh, hopefully by spring or summer of 22, we're going to have it rolled out here in Arizona as a, as a test base. Well, if you need any beta testers in the UK, I'm always uh, happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's insanely fast and uh, I say it's both up and down and we can do it cost effectively. And there's, there's not uh, an expensive um, infrastructure in order to, to make it work. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Well, listen, Rob, it's been um, absolutely amazing to hear some of your stories. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving us a bit of an insight into uh, those incredible games that you worked on and uh, sharing your memories. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. It was great talking to you.